funniest player on the team for me is Belly, and it's the way he delivers for real. It's like when he delivers his jokes, there's no laugh, and you really can't even tell if he's serious or not. We deserve this win, man. Fox Sports 5 flying high in Motown. Oh, my goodness. I'm feeling great, man. I'm feeling the best I've ever felt. I'm excited. I'm, I'm all about winning. I know that the fans here are extremely loyal and passionate. And just like them, I, I want to become not just a playoff team, but a sustained playoff team and eventually get back to some of that championship success and contention. With the 12th pick in the 2020 NBA Draft, the Sacramento Kings select Tyrese Halliburton. Imagine being one of those players that's on a team that you know hasn't been in the playoffs in over a decade, almost two decades, about a decade and a half, and then being the first team to actually get to the playoffs. Just being able to be a part of that would definitely be something special. And if we can, you know, end up building a championship contending team, you're winning a championship in Sacramento. Like that's that's looked at a lot differently. You probably feel better than you do than with anything else. Welcome back to another episode of the King's Pulse podcast presented by the King's Herald. My name is Brendan Nunez, and today we have Tim Maxwell joining the show. What is going on, Tim? How you doing, man? Good. It's been a while. Um, just getting back in the swing of things. Got a lot going on in my personal life, so things are slowing down. Glad to be here. And we have preseason basketball in one week, so excited about that as well. Yeah, I can't believe it's in a week. It actually snuck up on me. I think I've been enjoying this last month of like taking it a little slow. I, I just got back from being in LA with some family I have down there. So uh, yeah, getting back in the group of basketball is definitely going to be nice, but also probably a little tiring and hopefully it's enjoyable at the beginning of this King season. Um, I think a lot of the fan base seems to be excited, which I think that most fan bases are going to get themselves excited going into a year one way or another. But the plan for today is to talk about how different really is this roster and team from going into last season compared to this year. And just to lay it out a little bit, I want to give you the roster from day one last year. Fox, Corey Joseph, and Kyle Guy for your point guards. Then you have Buddy Heald, Tyrese Halliburton, and Jamias Ramsey as your twos. Harrison Barnes, Glenn Robinson III, and Justin James. And then you have Marvin Bagley, Nemanja Bielitsa, Robert Woodard, and then Rashawn Holmes and Hassan Whiteside. Um, yeah, I think GR3 and Whiteside had some pretty forgettable moments last year. And then when you're talking about this year's roster, point guards are looking like De'Aaron Fox and Davion Mitchell. And then you have Buddy Heald, Tyrese Halliburton, Jamias Ramsey, Harrison Barnes, and Terrence Davis. And then Marvin Bagley, Maurice Harkless, Robert Woodard, Jamesi Metu. And Rashawn Holmes, Alex Len, Tristan Thompson, and Damian Jones. And not really mentioning the second white guys this year. Uh, I guess Lewis King and, and Namias Kita, who probably won't have much of an impact. But, I mean, just reading through those rosters, like what are the main differences that stand out to you? Some of those are additions that happened at the deadline last year, but they get an offseason with the team. And, and some were some additions from this year. But what are the main differences that stand out to you when you're just talking the differences in those rosters? I mean, you, you hear a lot of the same names, right? It's the key players, aside from drafting, are the same. Um, I think it's relatively clear that, for whatever reason, the Kings are really confident in this group um, because they didn't make a whole lot of wholesale changes at the deadline um, on draft night, of course, except for drafting Mitchell. And in the offseason, they didn't really go after anybody either, either. Um, so I think it's important too, as we, as we lay a baseline for this conversation, um, some of the chatter you hear a lot is, well, the Kings are a lot better than the start of last year, which is true. I think they are. Uh, but that's partly because Monty McNair punted last off season. Um, like you said, he had a, last off season, he had a GR three and, and white side, of course, drafted Halliburton, but GR three and white side. Uh, I think GR3 is out of the league right now. I don't think he got signed by anybody. And Whiteside signed another minimum deal. So you signed two nothing players that got you no production. Um, and then you didn't quite punt as hard this last offseason and at the trade deadline. So, of course, you're going to be better. Uh, but I think part of our conversation is, is better, good enough. Um, so just looking at the rosters compared from last season to this season, I think the bench is better, right? Like Mo Harkless and Terrence Davis are better than – Corey Joseph and Justin James and, you know, whoever else, GR3, I guess. 
So there's been improvement, um, but improving from non-existent depth to not great depth, it just doesn't, the team overall just looks the same to me, right? You got Barnes, Buddy, Fox, Halliburton, Holmes, right? Those are like your main guys. We can throw a Bagley on there if we want. And your main guys are still the same main guys. And these are the main guys that, aside from Halliburton, have led you to 31, 33, 35 win seasons for the last few years. So I'm just not seeing I'm, – I'm, I'm seeing – I understand the excitement for the season, for basketball starting again, for our hopes to go again. I'm just not seeing a whole lot of difference in the talent level of the two rosters. How are you feeling? Yeah, I think it's what you pointed out. Like the main difference is the first game last year had nine players. The bench is Halliburton, Corey Joseph, Hassan Whiteside, Nemanja Bielitsa. I think you could argue two of those guys probably shouldn't even get real minutes on a consistent basis. And this year I think you can count like 11 that I would feel comfortable with getting, you know, 15 minutes a night. Um, there's that obvious starting five, or I guess not obvious, you know, there's the four, like you mentioned, Fox, Buddy, Barnes, Holmes, I'm throwing Bagley as the fifth, but honestly, it's whatever at that point. And then after that, Mitchell, Halliburton, Terrence Davis, Harkless, Lynn, and Thompson, I think are all fine guys to get minutes on a nightly basis. So I think the depth is nice. Like that was a big criticism last year, but like you said, it's about is improved good enough. And I want to go back to something you said at the beginning of that, that you feel like or it seems like the front office must be content with this roster. And I don't know. I just want to question that a little bit. Like, do you think that it's McNair seems like a big splash guy? This kind of seems like the Houston thing, like Rosas before all the crap went down recently was waiting for a big move. And, you know, his big move maybe didn't go great. The one that he did make with D'Angelo Russell for Andrew Wiggins, which maybe is still to be determined, but really like pick protections, which made it turn into, Andrew Wiggins and Jonathan Kuminga for D'Angelo Russell looks a little bit suspect at this point in time, um, but still a little bit tricky. I mean, do you think that it's like McNair's just waiting for a big move, which I'm not saying that that's necessarily the right thing, but I think there's a chance he's not necessarily content with this roster and more so just like waiting for his moment. No, I agree. I, I agree with that. Um, he's clearly looking for a big splash. Like that's, if like troll through any connected Sacramento person's Twitter or social media or interview feed over the last couple of however, however long McNair has been in the job. And all you're going to hear a year, I guess, is big splash, big trade, big name, James Harden. Look at the James Harden thing. James Harden, Houston, 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 Russell Westbrook, Chris Paul, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so you're right. I don't think, I don't think Monty McNair looks at this team and goes, Oh yeah, we're, we're a, a real playoff contender where we're going to go, we're going to make a run at the playoffs, run in the playoffs. But at the same time, there seems to be a, a level of contentment as far as like, I think he thinks we're one big trade away from being a team. And that could be true. Um, but in the meantime, I'm just, the one thing I've always been confused about over the last year is I don't, I don't want to say there's been no incremental improvements upon the roster, but not all the tools are being used to incrementally improve the roster, right? So like if you're waiting for Ben Simmons, that's the big obvious name out there, right? You want to be prepped for Ben Simmons, both from an asset standpoint and from a talent level standpoint, and hopefully both. So if you're preparing from an asset standpoint, you're, you're building up assets, right? If you're preparing from a talent standpoint to say, okay, once we get that guy, I want to, I want to be there, right? You don't trade for Ben Simmons to make the eighth seed. You trade for Ben Simmons to become the fourth seed. And I know that doesn't all happen right away, but I feel like there's, we've just been kind of been playing this game of tug of war of um, we're not, we're not really getting better in the now. Maybe, again, maybe slightly, you know, your, your rights, your Davises, your lens, your Thompson's, but like replacing Glenn Robinson, the third with Terrence Davis is not getting you from, a 35 win pace to a 44 win pace, which is what the Kings need, right? So I just, I, I've always been confused by the vision. And if the vision is purely, I'm waiting for a big trade, like you mentioned, that's awfully short-sighted and long-sighted at the same time as far as, okay, but what if that big trade never materializes, right? Ben Simmons is getting traded. We all know he's getting traded probably in the next week or two, maybe in the next month. 
if the Timberwolves or the Warriors or who Portland, whoever sweeps in and gets Ben Simmons, your next star isn't available until at the earliest February or whenever the trade deadline is going to be this year. And at that time, stars aren't always available at the trade deadline. So it's just, it's interesting to me that I think the, again, like you said, the depth is a little better. The team's a little better, but when you're a 35 win pace team and you're trying to become a contender, a real competitor, you need to, you need significant improvement. And I, I just haven't really seen that. Yeah. And I think it would have been hard for like extremely difficult borderline impossible for McNair to have reached like that four seed sort of expectations that you're talking about. Um, but I mean, I, I do get what you're saying. Like, I think the marginal improvements are like you're saying, not properly utilizing assets. I mean, I think a bogey stands out to me. Um, you know, maybe there's some logic behind uh, James Ham pointed out that the team could potentially make max space or borderline max space this off season. And maybe not spending the MLEs was to save for that. And, you know, like maybe you're trying to steal away one of these restricted young guys like Mikhail Bridges, where Aiton and Bridges come up at the same time. And maybe Phoenix can't throw out the money for both. But obviously, if they're a championship contention team, they figure that out. And who knows? Like maybe that's the plan. And I'm, I'm not trying to defend it. I'm just trying to find some sort of logic behind, you know, not moving on from bogey or not spending these these last two MLEs during these off seasons. So I think it is a little bit confusing and obviously a little frustrating that like the deals seem to keep on falling through for probably outlier reasons, but it can't help but feel a little Kangsy, right? Like the Dante DiVincenzo thing gets outed that they were speaking beforehand and that didn't seem like it was from Sacramento's point of view, the leaks. Um, And then this complicated situation with Buddy Heald that got a little bit of light shed on it today that once Westbrook realized the Lakers were trading away pretty much their only assets to eventually acquire him, he called the Wizards ownership and demanded a trade. And that made the Buddy Heald, Kyle Kuzma, and Contavious Caldwell Pope trade kind of fall through, which allegedly Sacramento's front office was pretty upset about. And I think most of the fan base probably was upset about too, um, understandably. So this like seemed like a little bit of outlier things, but I don't think that the Sacramento fan base is ever going to really get the benefit of the doubt when it comes to that stuff. Well, and, and like with, I, I, I don't, I honestly, I, I don't blame Monty for the bogey deal falling through. And I don't blame Monty for the buddy deal falling through. They're just like, okay, terrible luck. Like you said, it's kind of Kingsy at the same time, like make another plan, you know, like, and I'm sure they're trying, yeah. I think the buddy deal is a little harder to recover from because I don't think a lot of people want buddy. I don't think buddy's a very popular, like, oh yeah, let's go get that guy as good of a shooter as he is. But with Bogey, you re-sign him, you trade him, you find another trade, you call Atlanta and you say, hey, we're keeping him unless you give us assets. You know, there's there's ways to move on from the failed deals. And that's just not what I've seen from McNair thus far. And again, maybe just zero deals were out there, right? Kind of like the Harrison Barnes debate at the deadline. Like if, if you're a money I don't know if you should say supporter, but if you're more positive outlook on Monty, you say, well, we don't know what Barnes deals were out there. We know the Celtics were interested, but we know Danny Age never trades anyone anyway. So there was nothing there. You look at it more negative. We just don't know. We don't know what Buddy or, or Bogey or if we're bringing up Barnes deals were out there, but something's out there. Um, yeah. Bagley, right? I mean, where, where are we at with Marvin Bagley? We're just pretending that he wants to be here, I guess. I, that's where we're at um anyway yeah I, I just think you have to move you have to pivot right like that's part of the nba is, is pivoting that's pun not intended part of the nba is pivoting and if you don't pivot then you're falling behind and i i think that's where the kings are i, I will say this though about Monty's tenure thus far someone said it in the king's herald group chat today and i don't remember who it was or i give him credit um they talked about how Monty's one good move from being our hero right and he's one really bad move from becoming a villain. And he's just kind of stayed in that neutral territory. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I think also mentioned in the chat was kind of treading the line is not exactly a great thing to do considering where that starting point of the line was for the Sacramento roster. And yeah, just to talk through, I, I you know, I've seen a lot of arguments that I think, you know, you mentioned at the beginning here, 
not saying you were arguing for it, but I, I've definitely seen it thrown around that the team was a lot better in the second half of the year last year. And people want to point to the defense, right? And pre-All-Star break, 30th in defensive rating, um, a horrible number that I hate I have to read out loud, 119.1 defensive rating. Post-All-Star break, 23rd defensive rating, uh, 113.8. It's a notable improvement, I guess, but you're still a pretty bad defense. But I will say there's a big difference between being pretty bad and what the Kings were for pre-All-Star break, and I still think for moments post-All-Star break. So, you know, I've said a lot that, like, if they could just be competent on defense and be a really good offense, that that's a solid team. But the other aspect, offensive rating pre-All-Star break, ninth, 113.5. Post-All-Star break, 16th, 111.9. So, like, that offense needs to stay at a high level while you are still being capable on defense. You know, like, more minutes towards Mo Harkless is going to help you on defense, but it's going to sacrifice a little bit of your offensive potential. Um, I think like DeLon Wright, I guess not in place of Corey Joseph, but I think there's guys that definitely fall into that. So if your just idea is to be passable on defense, and if you want to call 23rd in the league passable, like I guess, then you still need to be a really damn good offense. And they weren't quite that in the second half of the year. Um, net rating difference, first half of the year, 26 minus 5.6, second half of the year, 21st um, minus 2.0. So I think just the idea of like how much better really were they in the second half of the year, you know, um, there were improvements on the defensive end and that's where everybody had their focuses, but there also were a little bit of down moments on offense. And I just think that like, if what you're relying on in the improvement and we'll get to where some potential other improvements come from are, that the guys that were acquired at last deadline are going to be here for a little while. Like, I don't know if the second half of that year was actually as good as some people might be wanting to remember it as. Yeah. And it's interesting. I, I hadn't looked up those numbers that they, I think if my memory serves me correctly, they went, they jumped up seven spots in defensive rating and dropped seven spots in offensive rating. So like you said, it's just an even exchange. Got, like you said, Mo Harkless. Great. He's a, fine defender solid I don't I don't he's not he's not I don't know if I rate him as a good defender he's solid but you're replacing um, him with a guy that like can't really play defense right when you're talking Bagley like the the difference right. in defense on those lineups is is still pretty notable right and and so that's what I'm saying so but Mo Harkless is terrible on offense if we can be honest like he can't you know I think he shot like 23 percent from three last year or something I thought that's the only definition of offense um so and I think that speaks to the level of talent that we're adding, right? Like your, your bench players in the NBA, your, your eighth men are typically like one or two skill guys or one side of the floor or other guys, right? Um, Marcos is a perfect example of that, right? Negative on offense, I would say. I think that's fair to say. And a positive on defense. Um, and you can, you know, Tristan Thompson, I would say he's probably a negative on offense and has, slight positive on defense maybe and Alex Len you know Alex Len's a fine player kind of neutral maybe a little bit better defensively but that's the level of talent that they're adding so there's it's like you know trying to juggle six balls at one then you're just swapping hands um at some point you, you need like something better than Alex Len or Tristan Thompson or Wright or Terrence Davis or whoever Mo Harkless um and I know that's hard to do for the Kings. So like the Kings GM job is inevitably harder than probably any other GM job in the league, because you're not going to start with a lot of assets probably. And it's hard to build assets and also no one wants to be here. Um, but that's just, that's, that's the job Monty McNair took. So you have to find a way to get past that offense or defense and find the guys that are offense and defense. Those are your Harrison Barnes. Those are your, some to, to a certain extent, Darren Fox's even Buddy Heald. I know he's obviously terrible on defense, but he at least is so such a good shooter that he can negate some of that. And that's that's just what the Kings need more of, because if you can add top end talent, now you're not so reliant on Mo Harkless, the one sided player, or Tristan Thompson or Marvin Bagley, the one sided players of the world. Your two way guys become your key role players. That's what, you know, the Phoenix Suns can do, right? That's what these contenders can do because they're deep, but they're they're deep because they have star level talent 
and they have those really solid role players that can play both ways. Right now, the Kings have one guy in De'Aaron Fox that is sort of like could be star level, but not quite there. Like he's he's attaining that. Um, and then a bunch of a couple of solid players with Sean Holmes, Harrison Barnes, and throw Tyrese Halliburton in there for now in his career. And then the rest are just your, you know, they would be a ninth guy on a contender, and there are fifth guy or seventh guy, which has always been the Kings problem. And and that's a difficult problem to solve because you are the Sacramento Kings. Totally. And you mentioned Lennon Thompson. I do think that this is like an interesting aspect when you're talking about the defense. Um, You know, the rim protection was horrible on the team last year. And I do think that Thompson and Len probably come in as the two best rim protectors on the team. Like I think Holmes is really capable in that aspect and opponents shot 3.7% worse at the rim with Holmes on the floor compared to any other big on Sacramento's roster. And while I do think Holmes is good, I think he's like average probably in that aspect. He's also very foul prone and that's not why you have him out there, right? Like you have an offensive focused big man out there most of the time. And Whiteside was your backup big at the beginning of last year. I don't even know if that's an offensive focus big or a defensive focus big. Like, yeah, whatever about Hassan Whiteside. It's a, it's a lottery, it's a lottery focus big. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I would have taken that focus, but we didn't get that. Um, I think Lennon Thompson are interesting. Like, a lot of people really crapping on Tristan Thompson's play, and I get it. Like, uh, I don't think he's obviously what he was in Cleveland. I think like he also got miscast a lot last year he played a lot of the four which was kind of one of the first times in his career he's done that and he's a guy coming in that has a lot of veteran experience at this point in his career you know a championship under his belt and I from what I can tell is very well documented as a good teammate even if you know he does have some like media behind him off court because of relationships or whatever um, like documented as a good teammate. And I think it's just an interesting aspect because rim protection has always been a thing that's just been horrific for the Kings. Last year, they allowed the third most attempts uh, within five feet. And they also gave up the her- third highest field goal percentage on those attempts, 64.4%. You know, uh, one of the other teams at the top, I believe the top team, I should have this in front of me, was Indiana. And that's because you're funneling everybody to Miles Turner. That just makes sense. Uh, funneling everybody to Rashawn Holmes isn't exactly what I would say they were doing. I think it was just having trouble to contain or maybe not caring enough to contain for some guys on certain possessions throughout a game. Um, So, I mean, like, again, I'm just kind of throwing out the arguments on where the improvements are from the beginning of last year to the beginning of this. And I'll also say throughout the latter portion of last year, like your backup bigs became – Chemezi Metu, Damian Jones, or Marvin Bagley, all of those guys I would say are pretty rough on the defensive end. Like Damian Jones has his moments, but he still is, is pretty sketchy, I would think, when it comes to a consistency basis on that end and also very foul prone, similarly to Holmes. So, you know, maybe there's a little bit of boost when it comes to rim protection. Like I, I do think your center rotation sounds a lot nicer at very least. Definitely. And I think the other huge benefit of adding Thompson and Lynn, although I don't agree with the move, is that you don't ever have to play Marvin Bagley at center. And I, I, at the beginning of Bagley's career, I thought he was a center. And then he has played for three years, and I never want to see him at center again until he can improve his room protection because every Kings lineup with Bagley at the center last year just got destroyed defensively. Uh, defensive rating, defensive rim protection, all of it, it's just all horrible. horrible. It's not all Marvin Bagley's fault. Marvin Bagley and Buddy Heel got played a lot together, which is just like at, with Marvin Bagley at center, which is about the worst combination I can think yeah. of in the entire NBA. Um, but it, it does allow you to sit Marvin Bagley in at power forward. And if he's going to play center on offense with one of these rim protectors, I think that just makes everything easier. Um, and, you know, you mentioned rim protection. I, I do think that the Kings really have suffered for 15 years almost. Aside from, you know, they had Dallin Bear for a year, couple other guys for a year or so but most of the time their rim protection has been terrible um and alex len is a fantastic rim protector i remember when he came to sac he had a really really good run i don't, I don't remember how many games he played for sac like 20 something or 19 i don't remember and he was just fantastic at the rim and the numbers were all like out of this world good and i think we all kind of were like oh that was cool but it was also you know a quarter of a season or less but last year len um 
within six feet of the rim. Um, his offensive player's average was 62.6% at the rim. He held them to 51.4%, so wow. an 11.2% differential, which was four, five, six, seven, eighth in the NBA among all centers that played uh, that defend at least 200 field goals at the rim. Um, so that's better than Nerlens Noel, Jared Allen, Clint Capella, um, Nurkic, Embiid, Aiton. You could go go down the line. That doesn't mean he's better than those guys, right? But his rim protection is. I mean, he's he's a massive human being. Like he, Alex Len goes on the floor. You know he's over seven feet tall. You know he's seven feet tall. He's just a big dude. Um, he's he's a good rebounder. Tristan Thompson's not quite the rim protector, but like you said, he also played a lot of power forward last season. And I think the Celtics just were an odd roster last year um, overall. But I, I do I like if the Kings had added Thompson or Len, I would be pretty happy adding both it does feel a little bit redundant I think something we've talked about both in social media and other conversations is that the roster balance just feels a little bit off and something I mentioned today was how much better would this roster feel to a certain extent if that buddy that that buddy heel trade had gone through right if you were if you knew you were probably slotting Kyle Kuzman at your four buddy healed was gone so you knew you were slotting Tyrese Halliburton in at your two things would be a lot clearer. Um, but yeah, overall, I think Thompson and Len, they're solid additions. Um, the, like, uh, the, the Kings did not have a good big man rotation last year. You had Rashawn Holmes, that, who, who was, you know, had a career year. Marvin Bagley wasn't particularly effective. And then from there, your, your Matus, your Jones, your Whitesides, you're just, it's cannon fodder. That's all those guys were last year as, as much or a little bit of promise that Matu and Jones showed. So yeah, I think I think Monty's done some nice things. Like it's not not, not everything's a negative this offseason. Again, the question that I think we're gonna continue to come back to until the trade deadline until or until a big move happens, or until the Kings find success and, and prove me wrong and I'll shut my mouth and Monty will laugh at me in a presser, is is it enough? And I think thus far it, it hasn't been, especially if you think about some of the moves some other teams have made. Yeah, and I, I definitely want to get to those moves that the teams are that the Kings are rubbing shoulders with for kind of this play in competition this upcoming season. And I think the other aspect of those big men, before we move on to uh, Davion Mitchell and what he brings to the team is team was dead last in rebounding last year, uh, 30th in defensive rebounding and 22nd in offensive rebounding. And that is um, the aspect of Thompson. That's I think fairly interesting, you know, always been a really, really good rebounder throughout his career. Last year, per 36 minutes, 12.3 boards. Alex Len, per 36, 9.6 rebounds. Also, um, on Len's rim, rim protection, I think it's pretty notable that he did that on a overall really shitty defense in Washington. Like, I, it has a similar problem to what I think Sacramento's defense did, where they didn't have much perimeter containment, and he still did a good job of cleaning up after guys, which is something I've wanted on this roster for a little while. So hopefully that helps a little bit. But I, I think that the rebounding, and, you know, that's just being the period on the end of a defensive possession. Like it's, it feels horrible when you finally play a decent set of defense only to give up an offensive rebound and countless times throughout each game that that was happening for Sacramento. So hopefully some of these more capable bigs limit that from happening. Um, but the other aspect that I think is, is one of the biggest improvements that everybody's going to point to this offseason is Davion Mitchell. And um, I mean, I hate to be the guy, but I just don't know that Davion Mitchell's having a year one impact. Like it's a six, one guard who's defensive focused. He's shown offensive capabilities. And I think that those offensive capabilities might even be a little bit understated. Like his change of pace, his first step is really impressive. He's shown some nice variety of finishing with both hands, obviously has a pretty mature and developed game for a guy just coming into the league as he should coming out of four years of college. But I just don't know that it's reasonable to expect a rookie to really have a positive impact in the time that he's out there, let alone a six, one defensive focused guy. Like, are we sure that Davion, like, I, I think some people have in their mind, Davion's going out there and like making Damian Lillard have an off night. And like, I just, I have a hard time believing that happens one game throughout this year let alone like a quarter. Like, I don't know. That, that's just so much to ask from a rookie. Like, 
you think I'm off on this? I'm, I've seen a lot of people thinking Davion's going to have a big impact this year, and maybe culturally he does, which is hard to quantify. But I just don't know that you can expect, a, again, a 6'1 defensive focus guard to really have a major impact in year one. I just want to know, did you mean to say off night there? Was that planned? That, that was intentional, yeah. Okay, I just <laughs> want to check. Um, yeah, I, I think I think what you said hits, hits the nail on the head culturally i think he will have an impact and and i think that will come into games like davion mitchell is going to come into the game and to a certain extent full court press the other point guards but for however long he's in the game i don't know if it's not going to be every possession but he is going to get in someone's grill and make their life miserable some things i think we're not accounting for is probably foul trouble um he is a 6-1 guard who is very physical and when you are taking on the damian lillard steph curry's you know, whoever's of the world, the refs are going to side with the superstar over the 6-1 rookie guard. I think we're going to see some foul trouble from Davion Mitchell. Um, and yeah, the, the impact thing, I think you'll have a, a positive impact from a, from a cultural standpoint, from an intangible standpoint. From a tangible net rating, are we better with Davion Mitchell on the floor than with him off the floor? That's really, really hard for a rookie guard to do. Is he going to make a, a tangible difference in wins and losses next season? If if it if the if there's a positive difference, it's it's going to be minimal. And I just want to give a, a good example of that. Tyrese Halliburton, third in rookie of the year votes. We all think, well, most of us think he's got star potential. I think he's going to be really really good, like multi-time All Star. I am high 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 on Tyrese Halliburton. He was fourth on my big board last year. I loved him. Loved him since day one. Negative five point six net rating last year, uh, which was worst among rotational players except for Corey Joseph and I guess you could throw in Hassan Whiteside so third worst among rotational players um not not good and that doesn't mean Tyrese Halliburton had a bad rookie year I I think if we looked up Anthony Edwards or I don't know if we would see it with Lamella Ball but some of the other rookies that had really you know impressive standings as rookies um they're probably most of them especially like your guards and your bigs, they're probably going to have negative net ratings because it's really hard for a rookie guard to come into the league and make an impact. Uh, Mitchell being 6'1 really hurts him offensively. It doesn't make it impossible. It doesn't mean he can't score, but he's going to be going up against seven footers every single night that are going to want to, you know, swallow his layup attempts. He has shown some nice finishes. You know, he, he Mitchell could be pretty good. Um, but yeah, I, I think counting on your rookie 6-1 point guard defensive minded to make a, a strong impact in your in your in his rookie year is it's asking a lot of him maybe we got a little spoiled by Tyrese Halliburton's rookie year um but even you know if you're thinking about Davion Mitchell coming in and and you know blowing things out of the water think about De'Aaron Fox's rookie year De'Aaron Fox is a is a going to be a bona fide star in this league and his rookie year he came off the bench and from a statistical, you know, impact point of view, was not good. That doesn't mean he didn't have the potential, but it's just a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot to ask. And I, I think a concern is just from, a, again, a roster standpoint, if Darren Fox goes down, which he probably will for at least a few games, and Davion Mitchell is starting as your point guard, that's my first concern. And my second concern is who is your backup point guard? And if it's Tyrese Halliburton, that's fine. Then you're, you're just, you're kind of asking for some trouble. If, if Fox goes down for 10 games, let's say, and Davion Mitchell's your starting point guard, Tyrese Halliburton's your backup point guard, I think you're going to get eaten alive at that guard position. Um, yeah. So it's just, that's a lot to ask. Summer League was really exciting. Davion Mitchell was pretty good most of the time, obviously. He was also a 22-year-old playing against a lot of, you know, freshmen coming out of college people. Um, and non-NBA players. So I think we just, we need to take Summer League and say, that was really awesome. I hope he's really good, but let's maybe take our expectations down a bit, you know, undersell, over-deliver. Um, because if we if we overhype what Mitchell's impact is going to be, um, I, I think we're just going to end up a little disappointed this year. Yeah. And if if your idea is that he's, you know, making it difficult for some of these other starting guards, I mean, I'd be shocked if Davion isn't coming off the bench. Like he's probably guarding opposing bench guards and he's not exactly getting a crazy amount of minutes against these starting guys. I don't think at least like early on. 
Um, and, and, you know, an interesting point that you pointed out, and I've been wondering for a little while here is that like the point guard rotation, I don't know, like if Fox goes down, I might start Halliburton at point guard and leave Mitchell as your backup because your three points are Fox, Mitchell and Halliburton and Halliburton is, I was going to say probably starting at the two, but I think ideally starting at the two, because who knows if that actually happens um, and probably having minutes alongside those guys more often than not. So yeah, I mean, if your idea is that all your point guard minutes are going to two guys and there's not a backup after that, that's possibly a pretty skeptical spot that you're left in if one of these guys does go down. Um, and, and I think the other aspect in, is internal improvements. And on this roster, you're really talking about Fox and Halliburton. I, and correct me if I'm wrong there, like I guess Marvin Bagley you're hoping for internal improvement there, but it kind of feels like the hope is more so just, can we get some sort of like, I, I said this the other day, I don't know when you're throwing Bagley out there on a night to night basis, like what you can expect from him at this point, he doesn't have a skill that I know when you're putting Bagley out there, this is what he's going to be able to do. And I think just developing that is a basic, like I think the internal improvement from Bagley I guess it, it is notable, but it doesn't feel like it's changing anything for me. It would be like, can Fox take another jump? And I don't even know what that looks like in his defensive engagement, maybe, maybe his playmaking. Like those are two areas that I guess if there was some sort of notable jump there, that would be a big deal for Fox. And it feels like the defensive engagement is definitely one that could happen. But I mean, really, you're just talking about Halliburton. Um, you know, you mentioned some of his struggles last year even though he did have a phenomenal rookie season that was just a great time to watch like he's getting hidden on the defensive end like I'll never forget the Toronto game he's getting hidden on Utah Watanabe and Watanabe kind of has a damn good game I want to say he had a career high because Halliburton is the one guarding him like there's definitely still some notable improvements that need to be made from Halliburton and a lot of it has to do with strength which allegedly has come a little bit in same case with Fox this off season, but like, especially when you're talking about the teams are rubbing shoulders with the Grizzlies, the Pelicans, like the internal improvements of the Sacramento roster aren't that notable. And am I right in saying it's primarily just Halliburton? I, I would throw Fox in there too. I really would. Um, it's Fox's next step is the biggest of his career, right? Like he's improved each season and he's gotten better each season. Um, and I think it's all you can really expect from a player of Fox's caliber. And now he's kind of knocking on the door of all-star worthy. I think um, I'm going to get the stats wrong, but I think he averaged like 20, was it 24 and seven, 22 and seven last year, whatever it was. Yeah, I think like 25, um, seven and four or something like that. Yeah. I think he was the only him and Trey young from last season are the only two players in NBA history to average 25 and seven and not make the all-star team in NBA history. Um, he's the only player in a long time, to, I think maybe ever for Sac to no, not ever. Anyway, um, really, really good season last year. So I, th I think the next step for him is really difficult. Um, as you mentioned, defensive awareness, engagement, um, commitment is probably his biggest move going forward. Um, not only from a from an individual standpoint of preventing other point guards from tearing him apart, but also just from a, a team um, accountability standpoint. Um, when you watch your star player go out and half-ass it on defense every night, it's very easy for the Buddy Heels and Marvin Bagley's um, of the world to do the same. And then shooting, I think, is another big, 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 big one. Free throws, three-point percentage. Um, he looks bigger in videos right now. He looks stronger. Um, he's already probably, I would, I don't know if the best rim, rim attacking point guard in the NBA, but probably top three. Um, so if, if he can make that jump, cause I would say right now, he's probably depending on who you talk to in like the 11 to 15 range of point guards in the NBA, he needs to get into that top eight, nine range. And those things are, what's going to help him get there. And hopefully he's been working on those, um, those areas of weakness in the off season. But yeah, you are correct in that Tyrese Halliburton. He's honestly, he's the swing for the Kings moving forward until they make another big move. Assuming one happens because I don't believe in Marvin Bagley. We all know this. Um, Aside from rebounding, and this is going to sound harsh, he's below below average to bad at everything. He's not a good offensive player. He's not efficient. 
He can't run pick and rolls. He's not a good defensive player. Can't protect the rim. Can't play in space. Can't defend the perimeter. Can't switch. Um, solid rebounder. So I, I just kind of write him off. But Tyrese Halliburton is a swing player moving forward for the Kings. If he becomes the star we hope he can become, the Kings probably have the best young guard duo in the league, right? Like that's the next Damian Lillard, CG McCollum with Fox maybe not being as good as Lillard, but Halliburton being better than McCollum um, grouping. And so now you've got your stars moving forward. Um, If Halliburton hits a sophomore wall, which sometimes happens in the league, because now Halliburton's on the scouting report every night, right? Now we know what Halliburton can and can't do. As you mentioned, as much as we like to say Halliburton's a good defender, and I think you've probably been, you were one of the first to recognize this, Halliburton's good in passing lanes and bad in one-on-one. Um, and so he needs to improve those things. Uh, and, and if if those two players don't take another step, like Mitchell's playing 15, 20 minutes a game, and he's a 6-1 rookie point guard. So internal improvements, assuming the Kings don't make a big trade, if Fox doesn't take that step into that 8-9 point guard category, and if Halliburton hit, doesn't, if he can avoid the sophomore wall and if he can continue to step up on defense and maybe become a little bit more of a, a self-driver and score, Kings have a shot because they just honestly haven't gotten that much better from a, from an external perspective, from a free agency perspective. Yeah. And then when it comes to the teams that they're rubbing shoulders with, like San Antonio is the one that stands out to me that I would say probably got worse, but at the same time, I'm not going to bet on a Luke Walton coach team over a Popovich coach team. Um, You know, just I'm talking the loss of DeRozan is really what stands out to me for that San Antonio roster, but maybe some internal improvement with like Kelvin Johnson there, maybe does something in his Olympic experience or things like that. And New Orleans is interesting. I think the idea is that it's a coaching upgrade after Stan Van Gundy was pretty questionable during his tenure there, but who knows? I mean, the first year of a coach could be a little suspect. Um, And I think that going to Jonas Valanciunas from Steven Adams and some of the spacing, that they have around Zion Williamson this year with Thomas Sadoransky, Devontae Graham is intriguing, but I still wouldn't say it's like they're definitely an improved team. I think those could be lateral moves. I think like it's kind of the same thing for Memphis. Um, you know, on the other side of that, Stephen Adams, Jonas Valanciunas swap. I think that the willingness to acquire Jarrett Culver to draft Zaire Williams when they traded up to draft him shows that they are focused on the future that sure they're aiming for the playoffs this year but it's not like they that has to happen you know like it can be a successful season for Memphis without making the playoffs and I don't think that Sacramento can say that and then you know the other team I think that kind of falls into that is Minnesota Timberwolves they hardly played any games last year with all of D'Lo, Malik Beasley, and Carl Anthony Towns. But obviously there's a lot of off-course stuff going on with that team and I'm not even exactly sure who their general manager is going to be in the near future here, even though they're still apparently active in in Ben Simmons trades. But, uh, you know, if they end up acquiring Ben Simmons, I think that it's probably safe to say that most people are going to feel like they're going to be better than Sacramento. Um and a big improvement for two of those teams and Minnesota and New Orleans, as I mentioned previously, is a coaching change. Uh, Chris Finch in Minnesota and Willie Green in New Orleans. And that's honestly what I thought the big change this offseason would be for the Kings. And I just want to touch on this a little bit here. Um, I mean, how much better would you feel if like we were moving into this season with a new coach and on the other side of it, like, is it possible that there's a positive aspect to continuity? I know that's something that like I really rolled my eyes at before because, you know, I mean, we heard Steve Kerr, I mean, I'm um, sorry, Stephen Curry really liking Mark Jackson. We heard Giannis Santacumpo really liking Jason Kidd. And obviously those both, both of those guys getting booted and new coaches coming in was a good change for that franchise. So while the vibes, I guess, of this team seem to be good going into this year and the continuity could be a part of that. Personally, I would have felt a lot better if there was a coaching change this offseason. That's an aspect that I thought was going to be the biggest change of this offseason. And are you on the same page with me on that? Absolutely. Um, probably the most undercriticized 
portion of Monty McNair's tenure has been the fact that he's chosen Luke Walton twice, right? He, he kept him at the start of last season and we all kind of, you know, waved that away of, okay, maybe ownership made him do it. Maybe he, you know, part of the agreement, maybe you just want to give Walton one more year. Maybe he wanted to scapegoat if the season didn't go well. There's a, a, you know, a million things you could excuse that as, and we all did and it was fine. And then he chose Walton again this year. Um, and, and from everything I understand, and really, if you talk to anyone connected to the Kings, not that I'm particularly connected, that that connected is that this has not been an ownership thing. This was a Monty McNair decision that, yes, I want Luke Walton in charge. And Luke Walton has been a bad NBA coach for a half decade. And I tweeted this stat out the other night. And I might get some of the numbers wrong, so I apologize. I don't have the tweet in front of me. I think of the 111 NBA coaches in NBA history who have coached at least 320 games, Luke Walton ranks 104th or 105th oh. in winning percentage. That that's hist- legitimately historically bad. He had LeBron James and missed the playoffs. Like I don't need to say anything more than that, do I? And I mean, he took over a Dave Yeager team that won 39 games, got a better roster, and won at a pace of 35 for two consecutive years. There there is zero evidence that Luke Walton is a good NBA coach, and there is a five years worth of evidence of him being a terrible NBA coach. Doesn't mean players don't like him, right? Like you mentioned, players. You know, people like people that treat them nicely, right? That's like a basic tenet of humanity. And I think Luke Walton is nice to these guys. I think he probably pushes them at times. I don't think he's necessarily as soft as some people believe, but he's clearly earned De'Aaron Fox's trust and likeness. But the job of the GM is not to say, is my star player happy with my coach? Is, is my coach making my star player better? Is my, is my coach making my eighth man better? is my coach making our team better? And I have seen no evidence that Luke Walton has made this team better in really any way. And in fact, you've seen multiple players decline under him. Buddy Hill, Buddy Hill being, of course, the most obvious um, there. So uh, your, your question was, to kind, of, to kind of circle back, was what I feel better about this offseason if we had put in blank name at the helm? Uh, yes. I, and I would, if, if Monty McNair had walked into this offseason, fired Luke Walton, done a real coaching search and, and got a qualified candidate, whether I, they were my preference or not. And I think with coaching searches, um, you know, the Kings having been through so many over the years, we all get our personal favorites. We're like, they need to hire David Vanterpool or whoever it is. And when they don't hire them, we're like, Oh, okay. Well, I didn't really know anything about David Vanterpool anyway. I just do um, what Jill says, whatever, Jill, seriously, whoever just, Jill, likes. whatever, whatever Jill says, I just follow. She, she gives her four candidates and I pick one, whichever seems, whichever exactly. one seems cool. And then I pretend like I know a lot about them. Um, so anyway, all that to say, if, if Monty McNair had done that, I would feel so much better about the season, right? If I knew there was a competent head coach controlling Darren Fox, controlling Tyrese Halliburton, controlling Rashawn Holmes, controlling Harrison Barnes, um, I, I don't know if I would talk about us as a playoff team, but I wouldn't be in the boat of we're definitely not making the playoffs. And that's the boat I'm in now until we make a big move. Um, I think we're wasting another year of Darren Fox. I think we're wasting another year of Tyrese Halliburton. I think Luke Walton will inevitably be fired mid-season or post-season, and then we will just have delayed everything by two years unnecessarily. Um, so yeah, like you said, two of, two of the teams that were kind of competing against for that play-in, playoff spot, um, switch coaches seem to upgrade their coaching staff. And then I, I think the one we we didn't really talk about was the Warriors. I think they had the tenth seed last year, the ninth seed, the nine, yeah. And then they ended up the losing nine. and barely yeah. missing. I just didn't mention them because I'm like, this team's yeah. gonna be way better than Clay Thompson. Right. Clay Thompson, right? Like, so one playoff, one play-in spot is essentially gone with the Warriors returning to form. So you're competing against the Grizzlies, who won seven more games than the Kings last year, and then whoever's going to fight for that other plan spot. And, and I know you went through those teams. So yeah, it, it's, it's a matter of, um, I just, I, I don't think the Kings got a whole lot better. I think a couple of these teams probably got better, um, but the coaching changes are, are definitely a big impact in that. Yeah. Like if you want to be optimistic, you know, maybe there's a situation where Paul George hasn't been the healthiest throughout his career. If he goes down, like, but at this point, like you're just you're dreaming, you know, um, like you're really going to sit here and be like, oh, the Clippers, maybe that's who the Kings overtake. Like this is an outlier situation. You know, it's like Toronto falling last year or things like this. Like it's just it's not the most reliable. And, you know, I mentioned like Memphis can have a successful season without making the playoffs. 
I think that's reasonable to say. Um, like, you know, a healthy year from Jaron Jackson. I think some serious development from John Morant. Like, I can still have what I would qualify a successful season without doing that, without making the playoffs via the play-in or whatever. That's not the case for the Kings, right? Like, I, I put out a thing the other day, like, what is a successful season for the Kings next year? And then kind of rethought it, like, is there any answer that's not just the playoffs? Okay, uh, let, let me let me let me throw it at you. So, are you are you saying play in or playoffs? Because I think that's a big difference. I mean, I think like it's the play in. If it's the play in, is your way into the playoffs? Then sure, but I don't I don't really care if you make the ten seed and lose the game. Okay, yeah, because the ninth seed play in Warriors last year were thirty nine and thirty three. So in an eighty two game season, let me do this real quick. That's forty four wins. So if the Kings went forty four and 38 next year and got the ninth seed and missed the playoffs i i wouldn't be mad at that i really wouldn't because that would be a nine game improvement on an 82 game scale that's pretty significant um would you be happy with that yeah i guess you're right yeah no i could i could get there because that's notable improvement anything above 500 for me honestly like for 15 damn years we've been trying to get over 500 like we've been just trying so freaking hard to get mediocre just wasn't like, it the last year of the last game of the day dave yeager year that uh they had their final game they could have got over 500 and they just obviously like rolled out guys they didn't care about because the game didn't matter and barely didn't get this little moral victory that all of us were hoping for yeah well i think they would have gotten 40 wins right they were because they got 39 oh yeah yeah so that would have put him, well, it just would have put him at 40, which we've never done before in 15 years. Um, yeah, it's just, and it's such a sad marker. I tweeted this the other day. I, I think like the one thing the Kings have benefited for from for a 15 year playoff drought is we all, Kings fans, myself included, we act like making the playoffs is like this celebratory, like we're on top of the world and it's like making the playoffs in the NBA isn't hard because literally everyone does it, but the Kings every year, I think the bulls have the longest non Kings playoff drought right now. And I think they're at four or five years. I think as so the it's wolves, like, like the wolves made it that one year. And aside they made it that, that one year. Yeah. yeah. Other than they're like, like 28 or something. I don't know. It's something yeah. horrific. Um, so yeah, it's, it's just a matter of like, I, our goal needs to be the playoffs slash six, like positive record because you can't expect the Kings to become contenders overnight. At the same rate, making the playoffs is just not that hard. It's harder in the West than the East. It's just not that hard. So, But at the same time, if we can go from a 35-win pace team to a 42-44 to 44-win pace team, even if we don't make the playoffs, I would consider that a successful season. I would still want to see Luke Walton go because – I think he's terrible, um, but I, I would consider that a successful season. Yeah, and, you know, that's about eight more wins right there. And I think, like, the four main things that we laid out, like having the acquisitions from the deadline last year, Terrence Davis and Harkless, those guys you're hoping lead to two more wins, right? Lennon Thompson being your center rotation along with Holmes and Damian Jones compared to Holmes and Whiteside last year. You're hoping that leads to two more wins. You're hoping that Davion Mitchell, whether on court production or some sort of cultural change intangibles, like you mentioned, is two more wins. You're hoping that internal improvements from Halliburton's rookie year to this year and maybe some little bit of a jump from Fox and maybe some sort of consistency and healthiness from Bagley leads to two more. But it's just a lot of aspects where I feel like kind of everything has to go right for the team. And more often than not, that doesn't happen for NBA teams. So, yeah, that's, that's really always the Kings issue, right? I think you, you mentioned something about like, you know, what if Paul George goes down? That's always the Kings hope, right? Is like, okay, if we run the table on every lucky thing, we'll hit 44, 42, 44 wins. And it just doesn't happen. You know, something's going to go wrong at some point in the season, whether it's injuries, lack of improvement, chemistry issues, trade demands, um, you know, coaching issues, if they fire coach, if they call, if they fire Luke Walton, twenty five games in the season. Now you got a new head coach. Who are you going to name interim? What are his thoughts? You know, you're going to have to restructure lineups and 
things and are all the go excuses wrong. are like, oh, of course, the second half of this year right. didn't matter. Right. And then it's okay. Well, Monty McNair just needs to hire his new coach. He, the new coach needs a year. And then, you know, we're looking at the fourth year of Monty McNair's tenure um, with skepticism, but that's coming from at least me, a very cynical. Yeah, I mean, I think, I feel like I've been really defensive of McNair and at least just trying to understand the vision because I feel like these guys deserve some time and maybe that's not always the case, you know, but that that's been my point of view with this. But I think that like, if you go through another year of the same stuff, like uh, you really have to evaluate what he's done because you're right at this point, it's been nothing. I think like it was stated earlier, if he's one really bad move away from looking horrible and one really good move away from looking really promising. But if it's another year of just floating in this 10, 11, maybe nine or 12 seed, then you really, really have to question McNair. And I think, like you said, you and others are already understandably questioning him, but I think it it becomes undeniable like midway through next season, if you go past the deadline and there's no big moves to this roster. I think everyone just needs to kind of draw that line in the sand for themselves, right? Like, you know, I, I talk to a lot of people about Kings basketball on Twitter, social media, and private private conversations, texting, whatever. And, you know, everyone has that line where I've been told a lot. I, I remember at the trade deadline last season, and this wasn't you necessarily, but I remember the trade deadline last season when we, you know, the Kings didn't do anything. And I was like, well, okay. I remember I wrote an article called What Happened to the Plan? Because it looked like the Kings were tanking and then they didn't. And everyone said, okay, wait till draft, wait till offseason, let's reevaluate. And then we got there. And like you said, wherever that line in the sand is for you of, okay, we need to reassess his tenure at X point. That's fine. And I think everyone just has that different viewpoint. I'm, I'm at the point where I'm like two drafts, two off seasons, one trade deadline, a full year in the job. And we are in the, we have spun our wheels. Um, but I'm impatient because we haven't made the playoffs in 15 years. And not all of that is on Monty McNair. In fact, one year of that is on Monty McNair and 14 years of that is on other people. Um, accepting the King's GM job is a unique proposition in that you are not going to be granted the time to necessarily do everything you want. Um, And I think Monty McNair has made some pretty major mistakes. Luke Walton's tenure being the largest one that has slowed the King's train down and has, does have us spinning our wheels in the mud. Um, Some of the challenges he has just being the Sacramento Kings general manager. Um, So yeah, you know, if we want to make next deadline, that marker of, okay, if we don't have major improvement by next deadline that we need to evaluate, that's totally fine with me. And I think too, from my perspective, I always tend to trend on the side of questioning because I don't feel like that happens enough in general in the King's world. Um, But I'm not like fire Monty McNair. I don't think Monty McNair deserves to be fired right now. I think that would be a really bad decision. Um, But I think there does need to be some pressure to, to do something because as, as we mentioned, it's just been kind of a neutral, we haven't really gone anywhere point and we are one big move away from that being not the case anymore. Yeah. And I am very guilty of moving that line you were talking about. I was definitely a guy at the end at last off season saying, well, let's just wait or at the last deadline, let's just wait until this off season before we judge anything. And now off season's coming to a close and I'm like, Oh, let's wait till the deadline. Um, so, but, and it's easy to move that line because nothing's happening, right? Like, it's not like we're like, Oh my gosh, I can't believe he did blank or wow. He did so-and-so it's legitimately just like just waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. It's like right. a suspense film. We're just waiting for that thing to happen. And we can keep moving that line, I guess, because nothing bad is happening and nothing good is happening and, and minor bad things and minor good things are happening. It's just not enough to really gain any momentum either direction thus far totally and i think just to kind of wrap it all up the idea is that there are marginal improvements to this team and if things go the right way i think this can feel like successful progress this season but a lot of it does rely on things going the right way and going in sacramento's favor typically that doesn't seem to happen but i guess it's kind of a roll of the dice um and yeah just some of these improvements i I think that people understandably it's going to happen every off season a fan base is always going to get excited for next year you know like the oklahoma city thunder uh fan base is probably excited for next year even though their draft went about 
as poorly as it could have when it came to their lottery luck, but they're going to find a way to be excited. And I think that Sacramento can totally talk themselves into it. And I think they absolutely should. But I think when you sit down and, and look at this roster, it's hard to say that they are notably better than they were the year before. Um, yeah. Do you have any, any final thoughts on kind of our topic today before I throw a random non-basketball question your way? Yeah. Um, you know, we were so excited for GR3 last year. Right? <laughs> we really were. I, I, at least I was. I was like, ooh, we got oh, GR3. Was, like, that's, yeah. a, that's a nice pickup, man. Like, he's a 3 and D player. Like, eh, whoops. Um, nope. Um, and, and something I have a fault in, and this is, this is me just being honest, is that I tend to be so analytical and so, like, let's just tell it how it is. And sometimes I do lose that fan excitement you know and i think that's a really cool thing and i think that's something that brings us all together is like you know what kings have sucked for 15 years they'll probably suck again next year but let's hope they don't and i think that excitement whether you know as we analyze the rosters which is our job and as we shit on decisions or praise decisions or whatever um we can say oh man I'm super excited to watch Deion Fox next season. I'm super excited to watch Tyrese Halliburton's growth. I hope Marvin Bagley's healthy. Davion Mitchell's going to be beast on defense. Like, I think all of that is super cool. And something I can get better at is just engaging with that and enjoying that. And sometimes leaving the analytics out of it because sometimes it's just cool to be a fan. Yeah, and it's it's hard if you're going to be fully analytical with this team. <laughs> yeah, it's impossible. So I got to come up with a name for this segment, but I'm trying to ra- ask some random non-basketball question at the end of each one of these podcasts now. And the one I got for you had to be a food take. So what is the best topping on pizza? Well, okay. And you have to give um, me one because I feel like you're going to like go through like three right now. No, it has to be pepperoni, right? Like pepperoni is the basis for every pizza topping. You, It's, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. No, I'm with you. So give me another one actually, because okay. I can agree with you on that. I can agree with you on that. Then and I decided to I like pro- go away from pepperoni for my answer. Okay. And then I would probably go bacon Ooh, because bacon okay. is good on everything. And if you have a good pizza place that's using actual bacon and I like bacon bits, then I am all in. And even better, my kids like pepperoni and bacon pizza which my uh, kids don't eat anything because no kids eat anything in this world that are under five and all of my kids are under five, five and under. Um, so yeah, I would go pepperoni and bacon. Uh, where are you at with this? Mine's Italian sausage. Like I've definitely gotten a pizza okay. without the pepperoni and like just the Italian sausage. Yeah. I, I, I will. My preferred pizza is pepperoni and Italian sausage. It's just, yeah, that's absolutely where I'm at. I think Italian sausage is, so good and i think by the way like there are very much wrong answers like pineapple i'm a i'm a no pineapple on pizza guy i just don't think it belongs i've never been like it's the juiciness i guess to a pineapple and almost like the coldness that just throws me off it's like a totally random different texture that i'm just not about are you a pineapple guy on pizza i'm totally neutral on pineapple it is the the Tristan Thompson of pizza toppings for me. I just don't care about it. Like if you've served me, if, if I go to a place, I was going to say a party, but I, I'm a 31 year old married man with three children. I don't go to parties. Um, if I go somewhere and the only choice to me is pineapple and ham pizza, I'll eat it and I won't be disgusted. It will be fine. And I will not choose it either. It's, it's fine. Um, it is the plain oatmeal of pizzas to me. Like it's whatever. I don't you eat plain it. oatmeal. I know I don't eat it. I'm just saying like, it just plain oatmeal has just nothing, right? It's just like there. Yeah. I would never choose to eat plain oatmeal, but I would add raisins to my oatmeal. Oh, Jesus Christ. Just to get the, I, I found a way. <laughs> um, people like corn on pizza, which I've never had, but I would try. That's a um, big thing. I mean, I, I'd try that before i'd be willing to eat pineapple like if i get a pineapple pizza i'm taking the pineapples off of it you're just eating the ham and cheese yeah like that's fine i guess i don't really like ham that much either i I don't like the ham on there i would say the ham is worse than the pineapple for me i don't think it works at all yeah but i'll try any i'll try any food once in my life i really will i've had Mm. lots of weird foods but so is there like a food that stands out to you that you like 
tried one time and it's like never again or like some some weird food like i think i've tried ostrich at like a bass pro shop at like escargot once and that's just because i don't think i've ever had the opportunity to try escargot more than once yeah it wasn't necessarily good but yeah i had um frog legs and i didn't they Mm. were fine but i I didn't eating them felt weird because you're like it looks like a frog leg it just didn't feel good it didn't taste that bad but and i just moved to a new house and we have frogs everywhere which is super weird for arizona i didn't know arizona had frogs but i rescued eight frogs from my pool today eight Um, today eight today and i don't know if i'm rescuing them but i just i was gonna say what does rescue mean like well, because, you know, my pool has, you know, there's like an eight inch gap between the water and the wall. And I see them like trying to scramble up the sides. Mm. And so I think sometimes they'll land on like the pool vacuum hose that goes around and they'll jump off from there or the chlorine thing. But that was the most casual, yeah. flexible pool I've ever heard in my life. I live in Arizona. Like <laughs> we, we all have pools. I didn't have a pool in my last house. I just recently moved. But yeah, we, pools are, I would say, 40 percent of arizona backyards have a pool yeah yeah i reason. was my i had family my dad lived in arizona for a little while and i don't know how we would have gotten along if the center near us didn't have a pool just wouldn't have been able to happen okay yeah. one other one for you before Go i get you it. out of here yeah do you have a name that you know you were like almost named rather than tim mine was, uh, mine was jordan yeah um my mom we, I have two older brothers. My mom really wanted a girl, and every one of us was going to be Molly if we were. Oh, it's my dog's name. <laughs> there you go. Perfect. Look at that connection. Wow. Um, yeah, I don't think she she didn't know what to name me. Like she named me like later in the day after I was born. Like mm. I didn't have a name for a couple hours. I was just the the thing. Yeah, um, and they were like, "This kid's got a long neck." Yeah, I, I was almost named Brandon, so that could have been mm. cool, Brandon and Brandon, but yeah. that didn't happen. Yeah, um, man, we would have got along way better. Yeah, well. It's a shame. Yeah, my, my daughter was almost Belle, but we switched to the last minute. Um, my, my wife and I had an agreement, and if you're an expecting parent out there, I think this is a really good thing to do. We didn't like each other's gender names when, when we found out we were pregnant the first time, so we made a deal that before we knew the gender that um if it was a male then i got to choose the first name and she got to choose the middle name and the reverse if it was female and so that worked out oh uh, we had to agree on the other name if that makes sense so like if yeah. i picked a crazy name she'd agree to it but um and then when my daughter was when we were pregnant with my daughter before i knew it's gonna be a daughter that was when i made the commitment that if the kings had drafted luca we were going and if, if it was a boy we were going to name our second child, Luca. But oh, wow. Really? I made it was, that if the Kings draft him, huh? On Twitter. Because my, my wife always liked the name Luca, L-U-C-A. Um, and so I, I had her like on board. But then Vladi Divac ruined my dreams. <laughs> oh, man. Then I ruined his career as a GM. So yeah. tit for tat. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> All right. Well, Tim, I can't say thanks enough for coming on, man. I really appreciate you taking the time. Of course. Appreciate it. And anybody listening, thanks for taking the time out of your day to listen through and definitely check out all the great work going at on at the King's Herald 30 question series going on. And I'm sure content will continue to pick up as there's more newsworthy things with the season just around the corner. And if you enjoyed and definitely check out the Patreon there to support local independent Kings coverage. And if you enjoyed this episode of the King's Pulse podcast, please subscribe, rate and review and hear from us again in the next couple of days.